0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 25. And we've been looking two weeks ago. We were here in Genesis, and we saw the marriage between Rebecca and Isaac. And now we come to Genesis 25. Abraham has just died, and we see the continuation of the line through his son Isaac. And so we're going to be picking up in verse 19. Of Genesis 25, and if you are able to, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. <clears throat> we read this in Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out in his hand, holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your sovereign grace and love for us and the favor you've bestowed upon us. And I pray this morning that you would help me to communicate your your truth clearly. There's some hard things here and I pray that we would receive comfort. I pray that our hearts would understand it. I pray this morning for those who are struggling with the relationship with you, perhaps, that you would care for them. We pray for those in our church this morning. Think of several who are uh, in the hospital, we would ask for your uh, kindness toward them. Uh, just so many needs that, that we think of. And we rejoice this morning that you are a sovereign God who loves us and cares for us, provides for us. We pray for your continued provision. In your Son, Jesus' name, amen. When I was in college, I was sitting in my room and I was uh, reading my Bible. Which I mean, the start of that story makes me sound way more spiritually disciplined than I actually was. It wasn't every day that I was found in my room in college reading the Bible, but to this day, I was in my room, college, nineteen years old, and I was reading my Bible. And I was reading through the Book of Romans, and I I came to Romans chapter nine, maybe a chapter that's very familiar to many. In fact, t- uh, turn there with, with me, if you would, just for a moment. I, and so anyway, I'm, I'm reading through Romans nine, and and Paul has been talking throughout the book of Romans about God's grace and the gospel and uh, how you receive the gospel through faith. And, and, and I come to Romans 9, and it, it's not like I had never read Romans 9 before. I'm, I'm sure my parents had read Romans 9 with me growing up as we did family devotions, and I went to great churches, so I know that they had talked about Romans 9 before. So it's not like I was unaware that Romans 9 existed in the Bible, but. For whatever reason, I hadn 't really understood Romans nine before, and so I'm, I'm there at my table in my room, reading my Bible, and I come to Romans nine, and, and Paul is, is talking again about the gospel, and then he comes to the beginning of Romans nine. And he talks about how Israel hasn't received the gospel. He says, in verse four, they're Israelites, and to them belong." the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever amen and so i'm thinking okay that's nothing too shocking there but what paul is saying is here's here's the Christ here's the messiah descendant of israel and yet ethnic israel has rejected the messiah and paul says that was part of God's plan. Israel's rejection of the Messiah wasn't something that caught God unawares. He, he says in uh, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God failed. And he talks about how not all ethnic Israel is part of Israel, and, and we as Gentiles have been included here. And, and again, none of that is, is all that shocking to me. None of that is that disturbing to me. But then we keep reading, and, and here's what he says about God's plan, and, and specifically the idea of election. And this is, this is where things got a little uncomfortable for me. He's, he comes to verse 10, and he says, and not only so, and he, he references the story that we're looking at this morning in Genesis 25. He says, when Rebekah, this is Romans 9:10, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, that's Paul talking about the story we're looking at this morning in God's election. He's saying, hey, look, this was not anything about Jacob or Esau, anything that they had done, but it's, it's so that God's plan would stand. He, he chose, he elected Jacob and not Esau. He, he chose Jacob and not Esau. Now that really disturbed me. That, that bothered me profoundly. But Paul keeps going. And it gets more uncomfortable for me as I'm, I'm thinking through what he's saying. And so It's relentless. He talks about the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, how God was responsible for that. And then he says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, boy, this really sounds unfair. He says, by no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And I'm thinking, wow, again, this seems so unfair. And Paul comes to verse 19, and you'll say, why then does he still find fault? And I'm thinking, that's exactly what I'm thinking. For who can resist his will? In other words, if, if God wanted to save someone, he could save them. Who could resist his will? That's what I'm thinking as I read what he, he's writing here. And then he says this in verse 20, But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will the molder say, The molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And that, reading that, really set me off. And for the next few months, I, I don't know what exactly you would call what I went through, but certainly a dark spiritual time, maybe a, a crisis of faith. But I was thinking through the implications. Like, if, if this is true, this idea of God's election, that what Paul is talking about here, that God has this purpose and God chooses some people for salvation, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I can remember I was not uh, a very pleasant person to be around for many of... Uh, people in ministry at the time, you know, just, just challenging them with, with questions. And I, I felt like some of their answers were very flippant. And there was one group that really set me off, those, those arrogant Calvinists. I mean, those guys were really just bugging me, you know. So I, I kindly, I, you know, I said, so, okay, i got to get away from all this, and I, just, I, need to, I need to look at Romans 9, I need to pray about this, and ask myself, do I believe what Paul says here? Do I understand what Paul says and, and do I believe what Paul says? And, and here's the conclusion I, I came to. I said, okay, here, here's here's what I think Paul is saying. Based on what he said earlier in Romans, he's talking about us all being sinners. And do I believe that? I, I do. Do I believe that we're profoundly flawed because of our sin at a fundamental level? And 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 yes, I, I do. This is what I'm thinking as a 19-year-old. I, I agree with that. And and does does that mean that that God has to be the one who saves me, then yeah, I I agree with that too. And does that mean that God is chosen by his divine grace to to save me in eternity past? I said, that's what the text is saying. I I guess I believe that. I I hold that to be true. I I believe that God is sovereign over this. And and I I guess I agree with Paul here. as he doesn't answer all the questions, but he af- affirms this idea of God's sovereignty, I- I'm going to do that as well. And he, the response is that those of us who are Gentiles should respond with worship. That's that's what I need to do. That's the conclusion I came to. A few weeks or, or months, I can't remember how long it was, go by, and I'm working at a Christian bookstore, and they let me borrow these these books, and so I'm reading through uh, several books, and, and I came to another just, disturbing realization i found out that i had become a calvinist um which was those nerds you know i I can't believe that i was articulating the same things that they were saying and so that really disturbed me again right but here's what i'd say you know if uh if you're a calvinist if you say i'm a calvinist and and you haven't been disturbed by the implications of what you believe you're probably not a very good calvinist or or maybe to, to put it another way um You can't be a confident Calvinist until you've first been a troubled one, right? I think there's some profound things in what we see about God's sovereignty as we think about one of the hardest aspects of Christianity, this this unavoidable tension. And and here's here's what I want to do with you this morning. Uh, We're beginning to talk about Jacob's life. And Jacob's life is a life that is is full of, of tension. I mean, he, this guy has conflicts with everybody. He has conflicts with his brother. He has some conflicts with his family. He has conflicts with extended family. He has conflict with his wives. He has conflict with God himself. This guy's life is marked by by conflict and tension. And we're going to talk about some of those tensions as we go forward. But I, I also want us to think about this tension at the beginning of his story, as we think about this tension between God's sovereignty and divine responsibility here. Okay, in fact, if we think about this, there's really just three three goals or so that I have for our, our time of conversation. Uh, one goal would, would be, I want to show you what I think is an unavoidable tension for a Christian who says he or she believes God's word. This, this unavoidable tension between these biblical truths that God is sovereign, and then also that you and I as human beings are responsible. I want to talk about that tension and have you see it with me as we talk about the election of God, election by God of Jacob. I want you to see that tension with me. Another goal that I have, a second goal that I have for our time together this morning, is that you would agree with me that this isn't just some obscure abstract theological issue for those egghead calvinists to deal with. Okay, this isn't just something for them to think about that that this idea of God's sovereignty and how it interacts with human responsibility is profoundly important for how I live my life and how I view God, my conception of of what kind of God God is is dependent upon what I believe about sovereignty and my responsibility before a sovereign God. This is not just some abstract theological issue, it is important. And then my, my third goal for our time this morning would be this, that as you and I, I- explore this this tension together, this tension between God's sovereignty and, and our responsibility, that as, as we explore that tension together, we would respond in, in worship. That contemplating who God is and who we are in light of who God is would would compel you and I to worship, that we would worship God because of his great mercy. Now, you'll notice that one of my goals is not to solve the tension, right? I apologize for that. We are not going to solve a a tension that's existed for thousands of years this morning. I apologize for that. Someday you can talk to God, God, why didn't you give me a pastor that could explain this tension? And God will say to you, hey, uh, you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, right? So there you go. Sovereignty, right? Um, so let's do this. We're gonna we're gonna talk about this story and we're gonna talk about um, we're gonna talk about some wrong ways to read the story. There's some wrong ways to read the story of Jacob and Esau and really the idea of God's election of individuals and of people. We're gonna talk about two wrong ways to read this story, and as we talk about the the wrong ways to read the story, we're gonna see some some practical consequences for not reading the story rightly, and then we're gonna talk about how to read the story rightly of God's sovereignty in this issue and our responsibility. We're going to see the practical outworking from that as well. So let's first of all talk about this. Let's talk about reading the story wrongly this way. Reading the story wrongly, first of all, by only seeing God's sovereignty. By only seeing God's sovereignty. And, and uh, remember where we are. Look at verses 19 through 23 and, and what's happened. Uh, Isaac was 40 years old when he's married. Now he's, he's 60 and As uh, time has gone on, he and Rebecca have not had children. God was sovereign over the process of finding Rebecca and bringing her to Isaac, and we saw just the beauty of that. God is sovereign over this issue as well of having children, but they haven't had the same sort of success here that they would have expected. I mean, if if Isaac is supposed to be this child of promise, and the the descendants are supposed to come through him, and they're supposed to be this great nation, again, they have the same problem that his father and mother had. They aren't able to have children. And Isaac prays, and God grants his prayer, and Rebecca conceives, and and now there's a problem that Rebecca has. Isaac had the problem of, okay, will she become pregnant now that she's pregnant? She has the problem. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it's thus, in other words, if, if this is what pregnancy is like and, and where this is going to lead doesn't look good, why is this happening to me? And so she prays. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, as you read these verses, there is no denying, as Paul says in, in Romans 9, there is no denying God's sovereignty and his election. God's sovereignty, that word sovereign means his, his ability to rule over his creation. Election means his divine choice. And as we look at this passage, there is no way to get by this, this big truth that God is a sovereign God, that he's in charge here. How do we see God's sovereignty? A couple things, right? He's sovereign over the womb. He's sovereign over the womb. God, God is focused on all the details of human life. We've seen that throughout the Pentateuch. And he's sovereign over the womb. We, we see this in other places in, in Genesis and Scripture. Genesis sixteen two, Sarah said to Abraham, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. In Genesis 30, Jacob's anger is kindled against Rebecca and or against Rachel, and he said, "Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb?" And uh, there's there's anger there as he recognizes, "Look, this is God's God's deal." So God is sovereign over the womb. He, he's also sovereign over prayer. What what happens in this passage? Isaac prays to God, and God grants. God has the decision, am I going to grant it or not? He decides to. God is sovereign over prayer. Rebecca prays for Rebecca. And God is sovereign over Rebecca. He chooses to answer Rebecca's prayer. Throughout the Pentateuch again, we see God as a sovereign God, not only over the womb, but over prayer and his answer of prayer. God is also sovereign over the nations. Look at verse 23. What does it say? It says, as God answers her prayer here, he tells her about his his plan for these two children. He says, "Look, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. God has a a sovereign plan over these children because he is sovereign over the nations. In fact, this whole, this whole story of Abraham and his descendants is, is predicated, is founded on the belief that God is sovereign over the nations. God has told Abraham, look, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And it's, it's through you that all the nations will be blessed. In other words, God is sovereign over that plan. He's the one who comes up with the plan. He's the one who develops the plan. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over the womb. He's sovereign over prayer. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over election. Over his choice, he says, look, this is what I'm choosing here. The stronger, one will be stronger, but the older will ultimately serve the younger. That's God's choice. Now, in this culture, we see this throughout the Pentateuch, the older was to be the one who received the the right of the firstborn. And yet, what has happened time and time again in God's economy God has chosen the younger, chosen someone different. There's Cain and Abel. Cain is cursed, Abel, is, Abel is, is, is chosen, then Seth ultimately. You see it in the story here. You see it with Jacob's children. It's not, uh, it's not the oldest who's selected, but it's, it's Judah. You see it with Joseph's children over and over again. The, the, the promised line is not the one that you would expect, the one who receives the blessing. God's sovereign over that. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, elected you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, here's my point. You cannot escape the reality in this passage that God is, is sovereign. God's choice and election is, is the choice and the election of a sovereign God. But I also want to give you a caution. The caution is to only see God's sovereignty in this passage. My caution is to not read this story wrongly. This past week, uh, on March 31st, my younger son was was praying this prayer, and he he prayed a prayer that he'd heard his older brother pray several years ago on March 31st, he'd heard me talk about. It, and he prayed it again on March 31st. He said, "We're we're praying as a family." Said, "And, and, and God, please help." my jokes to go well tomorrow on April Fool's and help no one to get hurt and help me not to get into trouble. Amen. I said to him, son, uh, you know, sometimes we can be the answer to our own prayers. Um, This prayer does not seem out of your control. I mean, like, you can choose tomorrow just not to do silly things and and you're going to be fine on this. He goes, yeah, we'll see, you know. Now imagine if if the next day he he does the, he does these pranks and I said son what were you thinking he goes I prayed and God is sovereign and uh, you know it looks like you and I are both in the same boat victims of God's sovereignty you know so no you can't just pray you you have a choice here you're responsible before God for what you choose to do. Now, the funny thing is, God actually sovereignly did help him because he was planning on putting makeup on his brother, and as he went over to put the makeup on his brother, his brother woke up. So I do think God sovereignly answered his prayer here, but it was better for all of us that uh, this didn't uh, come to fruition. But anyway, anyway, what are the dangers here? What are the dangers? Oh, boys. Oh, man. Um, What are the dangers here of... Stressing the sovereignty of God at, at the ex- because God is sovereign, but at the expense at the expense of human responsibility. What, what I think happens when we do that is I think we fail to understand both God and man. We, we have a wrong view of both. And, and here's just a couple practical thoughts here. Here's why I think this is, is important to you practically. You ask the question, why was Jacob why was Jacob chosen? You just say, well, God's sovereignty has nothing to do with his responsibility before God, and he wasn't responsible for God, you lose something as you think about who God is. And, and here's, here's what happens practically. One, you create an idolatry you create an idol and diminish God's power and creativity, right? If you say oh, it's all about God's sovereignty and it's not about human responsibility, you've you've created an idol and you've diminished God's power and his creativity. There's an illustration that's been used many times. I don't know what the original source of it is, but you know, imagine the the play Macbeth by Shakespeare. And in the play, Macbeth is responsible for the the death of uh, Duncan and the question is, well, who who killed Duncan? Did 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 Macbeth or did Shakespeare, did the author, or did the character? And so there's, there's kind of a tension there. Well, the, the character acting within the play made the choice to kill them, but the author's the one who wrote it, so who's responsible? Now, with God, it's, it's even deeper than that because God isn't creating fictional characters. God is creating real human beings, and he's, he's sovereign over this process, and yet, at the same time, you and I live, and, we, and we, we make choices, and we do things, and we're culpable before God, and his creative power is beyond what we can comprehend. And so, whenever we fail to understand that there's human responsibility we, we diminish who God is we, we create an idol we also have the potential to make God responsible for evil if we say that human beings aren't responsible for the decisions that we make, you can also make God an uncaring God you can make God uncaring and as we think about God here in this passage as he deals with a a woman who's struggling with infertility as he struggles as, as a woman struggles with or pregnancy. God is a God who, who cares about that. He's not some cold, detached God. You can make your relationship with God fictional to so become someone who believes in, in fate, and becomes fatalistic or resigned to the whims of whatever this, this distant deity decides to do. That is not who God is. You can say that prayer is, is me, a meaningless fiction if you overemphasize sovereignty and not human responsibility. and You can become arrogant, right? You become arrogant as you believe that you've figured God out. Those are ways in which our relationship with God can be damaged as we create an idolatrous God. Well, the good thing is there's more to this text, but the bad thing is we can read this part of the text wrongly as well, and it starts in verses 24 and goes through the end of the chapter, and and here we can read the story wrongly by only seeing Human responsibility, right? That's that's another way to see this story. Wrong is to only see human responsibility. What happens in the story next? Well, what happens next is she has these children. Rebecca has these children. Behold, they're are twins. The first comes out, and he's he's red. His body's like a hairy cloak. They call his name Esau. Then there's Jacob coming. His hand on Esau's heel. He's called Jacob, and that name Jacob means he who grasps the heel. It refers to one as maybe who comes alongside, contends against, or supplants, takes over. The name Esau is less clear. Maybe it means hairy. It kind of sounds a little bit like hairy, but for sure his nickname Edom means, sounds like the word red in Hebrew, and so he's, he's this, this red, hairy guy. He comes out holding his brother's heel, and his mom has a special relationship with with him, with Jacob and his father has a special love for for Esau, a care for Esau because of Esau's ruggedness and how he's a hunter. And Jacob is this this quiet man. And then in verses twenty nine through thirty four, we we see this this story where where frankly neither brother comes off looking very good, and and we see them them interacting and Jacob being this this swindler and Esau being this impatient, foolish man who trades away his birthright for. A bunch of stew and Jacob overtakes Esau in, in terms of of the rights of the firstborn, so what do we see here? well we see we see human responsibility right we see these these two characters who are. Are culpable for what we do, and and we see, as we look at this passage, a lot of things about human responsibility, and, and as we go even beyond this passage, as we look at the Pentateuch, we see that human beings are, are responsible for their character, and for their character traits. Uh, Esau is this this hairy hunter guy, and, and Jacob is this supplanter, and Jacob's life, as I've said earlier, Jacob's life is going to be a life that is full of conflict. I mean, this guy fights with everybody. He is living this, this, this life in which he is constantly trying to get ahead. He's a he does every trick he can to uh, secure what he thinks he deserves. And he just lives this, this life that is full of stress and, and tension. And he, he struggles with God. And his, his life is a journey. He has certainly not arrived at this point. And as we think about their character, it is clear in the text, Jacob and Esau are, res- are responsible for their character. They are not immune from responsibility for their character by just saying, well, well God's sovereign. We also see, as we look at this story, that human beings are, are shaped by other human beings. And so we're not some sort of fatalistic creatures who just are robots and we're set on this journey and we, you know, we cannot deviate from this path. No, we're, we're human beings and we are affected by other human beings. And how J, how uh, Isaac and Rachel treat Jacob and Esau has profound effects on their lives. How these parents respond to their children profoundly affects the trajectory of their lives. That's real. That actually happens. They are culpable. Both parents are culpable for how they treat their children. Their children are culpable for how they respond to their children. And what we also see in this passage is that human beings are responsible for the decisions that they make. And both Jacob and Esau make decisions. Terrible decisions. Very, they're very unpleasant characters here in verses 29 through 34. What happens? Jacob is is cooking, and Jacob as he he cooks. Here, here comes his brother Esau, and and Jacob is this you know, a cheat, right? There's really no other way to say it. There's an obligation a moral obligation that he has to, to be fair in his dealings with others. Leviticus would say, um, don't wrong one another if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor. You shall not wrong one another, but fear God. I am the Lord your God. Jacob knows that the deal that he's making with Esau is not a good deal. This is not a, a, a favorable outcome for Esau, and yet Jacob does it because he, he wants what he wants. He makes this decision. He makes a choice. And Esau, boy, if, if one brother's a cheat, the other's hot-blooded and, and foolish, right? And this is a terrible decision that Esau makes. It shows how little he values his, his birthright. His faith in God is, is not what it should be. And the writer of, of Hebrews talks about this, this terrible decision that, that, um, that Esau makes. Now, as we think about as so we think about Jacob and Esau, we see that these are, are people who are making real decisions with, with true consequences. This, uh, this past week, I was uh, out shopping with my uh, youngest daughter in and, and Whitney. And you know, it's I was reading an excerpt also. This kind of goes together. I was reading an excerpt from a book called Why We Buy. Just, I haven't read, read the whole book, just a little excerpt. Why We Buy. And it's about the science of shopping. And it has some statistics in there. I don't know how, how true these are. But it said that 60 to 70% of the purchases made in a supermarket are impulse purchases. In other words, you didn't plan on going in there to, to buy that, those Oreo cookies. But, you know, you're on your way to get milk. I mean, if you're in milk, there's the Oreos. Why not get those things together? And so 60 to 70% of our purchases are said to be impulse purchases and they say that men and women approach this this differently and i don't know if this is i don't think this is an absolute rule i know this doesn't absolutely hold true for the the women and the men in our family but there's some some truth here they say that generally speaking Uh, women when they go into a grocery store will move more slowly through the grocery store and so you know they'll kind of go down this aisle and then this aisle and then they'll get to the milk and then they'll compare the different types of milk and they'll buy the the best type of milk for the best price men whenever they go into a grocery store on average will say I came in here to get milk grab the milk don't look at the price and just get out of the store as quickly as possible okay now on uh Friday night I was shopping with my youngest daughter here and and we go in the store and and Whitney goes off and is looking at some things and so I'm with Ellie and Ellie and I have not shopped together all that much but I, I know she loves shopping with her mom and I'll tell you man if you want someone fun to shop with Ellie is the person to take I mean she is just hilarious I mean we we go in there and we were there probably in the store for 45 minutes which is a really long time for me and we're there and um We'd, in 45 minutes, there were only two little tiny three-by-three three sections of the store that we were in, and we would go to these shelves, and there would be all these things on these shelves, and Ellie would say, Dad, which thing on the shelf do you think I like the best? The brush. No, I like this because it has a zebra pattern. Okay, that's... That's really I would, I would not have known that, and then we go to the next shelf, and, uh, Dad, which thing do you think I like best on this shelf? Well, uh, this has a zebra pattern, so this No, because this has sparkles, and sparkles outweigh zebra <laughs> patterns of it. Like, OK, uh, you know And we do that shelf after shelf, and I'm like, this, this girl is she, she's just hilarious. She's a fun person to go shopping with. Now, when she goes into a store, when a person goes into a store, it, it seems like they're making real choices. They 're deciding to do something, and different factors are weighing in on why you do what you do, but that those choices are not illusionary they're they 're real, and you and I are culpable for them again we can 't just buy a bunch of things, put on our credit card, and come back and say, "Well, you know what, God is sovereign, <laughs> kind of his deal. <laughs> you should pray harder if you don 't want me to spend as much we 're culpable we 're responsible. The same is true when it comes to our spiritual life with God now. Why was Jacob chosen? Why was he elect? Some people say, well, because of who he was. They stress human responsibility at, at the expense of the, the sovereignty of God, and that also causes you to have a wrong view of God and man. Let me just, here's some, here's some ways that I, I think this is true, how you lose something important. One, if you stress human responsibility instead of God's sovereignty, you again make God less than God in terms of his attributes. You make God less than God in terms of who he is, his character, if he's not a sovereign God. There's a theological movement called Open Theism that doubts God's real ability to, to know the future, know things perfectly. They say God's knowledge is an absolute, and because if God's knowledge is absolute, it would take away human freedom. And, but, but, but here's the thing about God, as we see it in Scripture, we see that God is a God who knows all things. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and, and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Verse 16 of Psalm 139, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, every one of my days the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them God knew them God is a God who not only knows everything about the present he's a God who knows everything about the past and he also knows everything about the future and if and if that's not enough for you to to worship God and to understand that he's sovereign think about this not only does he know Everything about the past and everything about the future and everything about the present, he knows all possibilities for the past, what could have been, all possibilities for the, the present, what could be, and he knows all the potential futures, what, what could be in the future. God knows all of those things perfectly. His knowledge is absolute. What should that cause us to do? Worship. And a person who stresses human res, human responsibility oftentimes doesn't acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of the God that we worship and they create an idol. You also, as we think about that, making an idol, you make a God who's dependent upon human beings and God in no way is dependent upon you and me and praise God for that. You also, this is very interesting, you also encourage, if if you stress human responsibility instead of God's sovereignty, you encourage self-righteousness and and legalism. A lot of what I'm saying this morning uh, comes from a or I've been influenced by a book by D.A. Carson called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. And he does something really interesting. He talks about passages in Scripture where you see this tension. You see people responsible for their actions and yet God's sovereign over their actions. You see this tension. And what D.A. Carson does is he kind of traces the interpretation of those passages throughout uh, throughout history. And we see this over thousands of years. And what what you see is that Jewish interpreters whenever they, they try to downplay God's sovereignty and, and stress human responsibility, what you see happen in those cultures in which that takes place is you see this, this stress on legalism. Over and over again, you see this stress on legalism and merit-based theology, self-righteousness. And what do we see in Scripture? We see that merit-based theology is a, a cancer to the soul. Encourage arrogance, as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? One more thing, too, is I think about how is this, how is this so practical? If you don't see a sovereign God, you remove important comfort in times of, of darkness and suffering. Because God is who he is, when you find yourself in a dark place, sickness, financial emotional relational mental when you find yourself in a dark place overwhelmed by stress overwhelmed by discouragement just just at at your end or beyond your end if you have a biblical view of god's sovereignty you say you know this is still god's deal god is still sovereign over the situation i am not here by some accident i am not the victim of human choice that God couldn't control, and now God and I are both kind of in this mess together. I'm still in the hand of a sovereign God who loves me and has said, this this is what is best for you, to conform you to the image of my son and to bring me glory. That doesn't make God the author of evil. It's a tension. It's a tension. Not a tension, as, as D.A. Carson says, it's not a, a problem to be solved, but a, but a framework to be explored and should cause us to worship him. In fact, here's Here's where I want to get. Let's read the story rightly. Reading the story rightly. As we read the story rightly, what do we see? We see God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We see the tension here in this election. Why was, God, why was Jacob chosen? Well, as God's sovereign choice of Jacob. And yet, at the same time, we see how human, humans were responsible for what happened to bring Jacob to the point where he was receiving the rights as the firstborn. And we see God's work in Jacob's life and Jacob having to, to trust in God as he goes through his life and, and faith. We see this, this tension explored. Throughout Scripture, we, we see this, this tension. We see God's people called to worship. As I think about who God is, about how he is a sovereign God in charge of all things, and how they're called to respond and, and worship. And in fact, as I think about that passage in Romans 9 again, we see this. We see, first of all, and I think this is, this is the, one of the most important things to, to grasp, we, we see that the res, the result of thinking about this this tension should not be that we question God in the sense of saying, God, you're wrong in this. God, you're, you're morally culpable for what you've done. We say, God, you are God and you have the right to do this. And as we contemplate who we are and our absolute culpability and responsibility to God, and we focus on that, In in light of God's sovereignty, say, okay, because of who I am, God, you have no responsibility to save me. You have no responsibility to bring me into your, your family. And as we see God graciously, sovereignly elect us... Although we don't understand all the implications of this, what we do is we respond with worship, and that's what happens here in Romans 9. It says, look, in the very place, he's quoting Hosea, he says, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it's there, it's in that place, those people are going to be called the sons of the living God. Now here's, here's the cool thing about this. Jacob is chosen over Esau, and from Jacob comes the Messiah. And that's what Paul is saying here at the, at the beginning of Romans 9. He says, okay, here's the, they had the Christ, and here's the Christ. And who is Jesus? Jesus Christ. To talk about tension, he is 100% God and 100% man, fully God and fully man. And it is in him that we find salvation. And as I believe in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the blessing to the nations, as I place my faith in him, Who's responsible for that? I recognize as I place my faith in Jesus Christ that I'm a sinner, and apart from God's choice of me, his election of me, I have no ability before God to find something within myself of value, and yet I have a responsibility when I hear the gospel message to to respond, to decide to, to trust in Jesus Christ. How do I explain that tension? I don't know, but I know this. As I come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing in myself that I can point to and say, This is what did it. It's all of God. And I recognize that I am responsible to respond in in worship and and trust of this God. What happens as I embrace this tension? It creates humility, it fosters obedience in me, it encourages me to, to trust in a sovereign, loving God, it grows me in patience and it compels me to worship him. It compels me to worship a merciful king who chose to save a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news, and we thank you for the gospel of your son Jesus, and we thank you that we have the responsibility, the ability by your divine grace, we don't understand, to believe in him, to trust in him, and we pray you would cause us to continue to trust in you. Again, I think of those who are are struggling this morning. I pray for your great grace in their lives and your joy in them and propel us to obedience through worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.